Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. Normally, these podcasts are only for patrons, but in light of the recent attacks on Palestine, we decided to publish ours on the topic for free. Recently, we talked to Miko Pilid in Jerusalem, prominent Israeli anti-Zionist activist about the climate in Israel in the wake of the ceasefire with Gaza. He's joining me again to give fascinating insight about the coalition government trying to oust Netanyahu and what it all means for Palestine. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron to make this work possible at patreon.com slash empirefiles. Thanks. Miko, thank you so much for joining me again on the Empire Files podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Abby. So this weekend, we will know whether or not Netanyahu will be ousted from his role as prime minister. Talk briefly about what has to happen to see him removed from office. Well, to begin with, there's going to be a vote in the Knesset on Sunday, or at least there's a vote planned to take place. And this uh, hodgepodge patchwork of a coalition has to get 61 votes in order to be approved, something that it's not clear yet that they actually have. And so if they get 61 votes, that means they have a government and that means Netanyahu uh, will have to leave his residence and the office of the prime minister. And so this is, you know, there's been like several elections in the last two years, but the reason that he was never ousted is because there was never able to be a vote that has ousted him. Is that correct? Yes. In other words, the, the it's actually still like that. I mean, the Israeli public is split between those who hate Netanyahu and those who don't hate Netanyahu. That's really what this is all about. On all other issues, everybody is, everybody agrees pretty much. So that's the one issue. And there's never and because he's such a strong politician and has so much influence and knows how to play the game better than anyone, no one has ever been able to put together a coalition to defeat him, even when the Netanyahu haters actually had a majority, because the key issue is this: nobody wants to rely on the Palestinian members of Knesset, on the Palestinian parties. That is a stain that will never be removed from any Israeli politicians if he's remembered as, he or she is remembered as having to rely on these votes. In this case, in, in two unprecedented things happened. Nothing, something that nobody could have possibly anticipated. One, Yair Lapid, who was the head of the second largest party with 17 seats, gave up on his right to be prime minister in order to bring in Naftali Bennett, who's a sadistic right-wing neo-fascist, to lead this hodgepodge of what they call a center-left-left coalition. And the second thing is that Naftali Bennett actually agreed, even though it means relying on the votes and actual participation in the coalition of an Arab-Palestinian party. These two things could never have been anticipated, and it's still not clear if this thing is going to hold up, but this is why it's never been possible. And this time, these two things took place that nobody could have anticipated, and it looks like they might have a coalition and they might be able to do this. Wow. Uh, I want to get into Naftali Bennett in a second, as well as the Palestinians that are part of this. But first, you know, let's let's address this mainstream media narrative that's being pumped out there. This is the change government. 
This is representing an unprecedented coalition of rightists, leftists, centrists, and Palestinians in the cause of banding together for the greater good. I literally got that phrase, the greater good, from, you know, several mainstream media publications putting this out there. Just give your response to that. Well, let me go throw up for a minute first, <laughs> and then I'll be able to speak. Look, it's, it, it, it is absolutely... It is absolute nonsense. Naftali Bennett is just as bad, if not worse, than Benjamin Netanyahu. He's a sadistic, right-wing, neo-fascist. Now, um, the fact that everybody else is willing to go with him um, is un- 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 really un- unbelievable. Unbelievable! Um, it's 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 an it's a reality that nobody could have, like I said, nobody could have possibly anticipated. There is nothing, nothing even remotely in Naftali Bennett's uh, agenda that could possibly bring anything good in the form of compromise, peace, negotiations. His entire political agenda, his entire being, is to destroy Palestine destroy Palestinians, um, and build a temple, a Jewish temple, instead of Al-Aqsa. This is oh the man, God. that is the vision. And the fact that all these, you know, what they call center and center-left Zionists are going with him is because they are, you know, they're going to be led like sheep by this guy. He's, he's going to, if he succeeds, um, and, you know, again, it's a very big question whether or not he's going to be able to succeed. Uh-huh. They, all these, all these people who are supposedly moderates are going to be doing two things. Number one, they're going to be helping him establish himself as this statesman and cleanse his reputation of being this right-wing lunatic. Um, and the second thing, they're going to be, they're going to be assisting him in, uh, in completing the most radical neo-fascist, uh, messianic Zionist agenda we've ever seen. That is quite alarming. I actually did not realize that he was part of this temple movement um, to actually replace Al-Aqsa. I mean, that that's pretty extreme stuff. Yeah, I mean, he, that's who he is. I mean, he if you listen to the way he talks, if you, he comes from, you know, he was the head, he was the leader of the West Bank settler movement. You know, mm-hmm. there is no more more radical right-wing interpretation of Zionism, and he is precisely the kind of guy that wants to rid the country of Palestinians and to rid Jerusalem of Al-Aqsa. There's there's absolutely no question about that. What he's doing now with this kind of, his willingness at a price, in other words, he's willing to, 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 to be part of this coalition on the condition that he gets to be prime minister for the first two years, which means he will have complete power to pretty much do whatever he wants. Um, the, and, and there's no question, I mean, that this is, this is part of the agenda. This is where he's going to go. I just want to read just a couple brief quotes from Naftali Bennett so people could really get a sense of just how fascist this guy is. I mean, we're talking about a more extreme right winger than even Netanyahu himself. Um, quote, I've killed a lot of Arabs in my life and there's no problem with that. End quote. Uh, another one, I will do everything in my power to make sure they, the Palestinians will never get a state. There's not going to be a Palestinian state within that tiny land of Israel. Palestinian state would be a disaster for the next 200 years. Uh, Palestinian prisoners are terrorists who should be killed, not released. And then, of course, there's the infamous line that we actually feature in our documentary where he says that Orwellian 
outrageous phrase that Palestinians are committing self-genocide. I mean, this is just beyond the pale because he's admitting a genocide's taking place. It's just self-imposed, right? I mean, they speak for themselves. But I, I guess elaborate a little bit more on who he is, what the new right party is. And like he's a tech millionaire, right, whose parents come from the U.S., which makes him a good candidate for prime minister. I mean, Netanyahu's from what, Philadelphia? He speaks perfect English. This is another person who's quite marketable to the United States. I mean, is that a necessary criteria here to be like? <laughs> well, it helps a lot. I mean, he is Netanyahu 101. He is the upgraded version of Netanyahu. He's, uh, you know, like you said, he's he comes from American background. He's made millions in in business, so he's proven himself to be successful. He served as an officer in the same murderous terror uh, gang that Netanyahu served in, which is called uh, you know special forces, but really it's a, it's a gang of, of of bloodthirsty terrorists. He served as an officer in that same unit, which is in Israeli terms, it's 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 very prestigious. Um, so he's got all of that, but he's younger. He seems to be more savvy, although we'll see. Um, and he also is the very first person with a yarmulke, with a, with a kippah, to become prime minister. He is the first person from that, you know, very toxic Zi- religious Zionist movement to reach that point where he might actually pr- be prime minister. That has never happened before. Um, and so he is Netanyahu, but, you know, like I said, 101. He's like the upgraded version. Very, very dangerous man. And so if this coalition is comprised of supposed leftists, centrists, and even some Palestinians, why, I mean, why put someone like Bennett at the forefront here? Because it seems like there was almost a mandate from voters, or maybe you, you can explain this, about being pressured by the population to pick this right-wing person. Because this whole thing that we're seeing unfold goes against the narrative that Netanyahu is to the right of Israeli society. It's like, why did the center-left or moderate coalition feel like they need to hoist Bennett up? to take over it was the only way there was no other way so what actually happened here he reneged on his promise to the voters to represent this you know very very extreme uh version of right-wing zionist politics they all reneged on their you know it's it's kind of almost like you know joe i don't know it's kind of like joe biden winning the election and giving it to and, get, and letting trump become president <laughs> that's really how absurd this is, uh, because that's exactly what happened. And Naftali Bennett, really his place is with Netanyahu and his, Netanyahu's coalition of right-wing politicians. But there's no way he was going to be prime minister for the first two years in that. With, this, with these guys, he managed to get to be prime minister first for two years, even though he only has six, he has six or seven seats in the Knesset, which is not a lot. But that was the only way they were going to do this. And he's the only guy who was willing to flip like that and basically give the finger to his voters who were all right wing, you know, extreme right wing settler type voters. Uh, So he took a huge risk because if he succeeds, then, yes, this is going to seal his, uh, you know, he's going to be this, you know, prime minister for a very long time. He's going to be seen as this great statesman and so on. But the chances of success are very small. If he fails, then the stain of him being willing to sit in a coalition, lead a coalition that includes Arabs, he will never be able to clean that. He will never be able to come back to politics if he fails. That will be the end of him. 
So why did Yer, I mean, you said that Yer Lapid, right, from the Yeshatid party that has the a huge block in the Knesset. Why would, again, like I still just can't wrap my mind around the fact that they would let this crazy fascist guy take over because they needed those right wing seats or votes in order to get the coalition through? Yes, they needed the votes yeah. and he was the only one who could deliver. And really, when you think about it, in terms of in terms of policy, in terms of the land, in terms of the Palestinians, which by the way everybody pretends don't exist, and they actually make up the majority of the population that these lunatics are going to govern, um, they have no argument. Zionism, right, left, and center is all the same thing. It's about ethnic cleansing mm-hmm. and genocide, and maintaining an apartheid regime. So on that, they all agree. There's really no argument. Um, the argument is more on the nuance, on how it's expressed, and how fast perhaps we go, how how fast we attack Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa, how fast we read the Nakab. You know, they the, they they treat the you know the entire southern half of Palestine, the Nakab, with the Palestinian Bedouins there. They treat them like they're some kind of crazy, lawless, you know, gun-toting lunatics. Um, and so they want to rid, they want to get rid of them completely. We're talking about about a quarter of a million Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, who they want to completely eliminate um, and push them all into 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 ghettos and Pakistan's and townships. You know, on this they all agree. The only division here is hate Netanyahu or don't hate Netanyahu. And so he moved, he used to love Netanyahu. I mean, he used to be in the not-so-hate Netanyahu, but he was not going to be prime minister with that coalition. With this coalition, and typically, you know, the Zionists, the more kind of what they call center-left Zionists, were always weak politically. And they finally found the man that was going to lead them into salvation and to and to perhaps get rid of, of Netanyahu. I, I Like I said, I think this is a... This is a huge risk that they're all taking. The chances of actually getting rid of Netanyahu, I think, are slim. Very, very slim. Really? Yes. Wow, because everyone's kind of posing this as like, well, he's definitely out this time. It's like, really? Because I feel like we've been hearing this for two years. There's nothing definite about Netanyahu. has a a lot of tricks in his bag still. He is still the most powerful man. He's got the strong. He's he's leading the biggest party in the Knesset with 30 seats. He has a very, very strong coalition to support that supports him. And the actual constituents of Naftali Bennett do not agree with this, uh, with his decision to go with all these kind of leftist, terror-loving um, <laughs> political parties, including, God forbid, the Arabs. So there's a lot of pressure being put on members of his party to, to jump ship. And we don't know for sure what's going to happen until the vote. And even if the vote does pass, they still have to pass legislation. They have to pass a budget. They have to... They have to do so many different things, and Netanyahu is going to be there with his full force, which is not inconsiderable, to see them fail. Right, and it does seem, I mean, interesting timing, considering that Netanyahu's poll numbers actually went up after the latest onslaught in Gaza. It seems like, you know, that always helps him whenever he bombs the hell out of that territory. Well, that was the whole point of, of lighting the fire. That's why he lit the match, you know, because he knew this was going to help He knew him. this was coming. Well, he, he, I mean, so he knew this was... This he was planned it. There's no question that this entire uh, bloodletting of Palestinians over the last few weeks, um, which, by the way, hasn't ended, just because of the ceasefire mm-hmm. with Hamas and Gaza, the lynching, the, the, the arrests, the killing of Palestinians in other parts of Palestine hasn't stopped. 
the, the ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem, the, all the horrible things that, you know, as you know, go on on a regular basis every single mm-hmm. day. They just don't make it to the news. So these things have not stopped. None of that has stopped. Mm-hmm. And um, so Netanyahu only benefits from, 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 from this violence. And um, he lit the fire. He lit the match to, to, to set off this last, uh, this last round of violence with Gaza. Absolutely. He did it what because he knew disgusting. this was going to be good for, for him. It was going to be good for politics. Well, that that's absolutely vile. I mean, there's really no words that can describe how disgusting that is. Uh, to to essentially just sacrifice hundreds of people for your own political gain. It's sick. But you see, the thing is, as 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 you well know, as you well know, Israeli politicians, the Israeli media, Israeli society do not see the Palestinians. They do not see them. They don't real. They they behave as though they don't exist. They forget that the majority of the people that are being governed by this apartheid regime are Palestinians. Everybody, the entire world, everybody, all they talk about is this nonsense of, you know, Bennett, Netanyahu, Netanyahu, Bennett, as though it matters which, you know, sadistic fascist runs this apartheid regime, instead of worrying about how do we save the people in Gaza? How do we save thousands? Israel arrested 3,000 Palestinian activists from within 1948. Not, not, we're not talking mm-hmm. about the West Bank. You know, they're being tortured. They're being held without, without seeing attorneys. You know, they're, it's, they're being lynched on the, in the streets. You know, incredibly terrible, terrible things are happening to them uh, because they're standing up, because they're resisting. Um, and very few people are actually talking about that. They're arguing whether the word apartheid is the right word or not the wrong word. <laughs> Nobody deals with the actual apartheid and 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 what that means for the Palestinians. Yeah, watch your tone there, Miko. This exactly. is a little too loaded. Okay, let's exactly. let's tone it down. Yes. Let's not call reality reality. And it is funny that Israelis tend to just literally. It's like they literally live in denial of that it's not you know that they'll they'll go to the ends of the earth trying to argue that it's a democracy and all this it's like you literally just are in denial about um about the reality of it uh as you mentioned i mean five palestinian five million palestinians are living under this apartheid rule uh let's talk really quickly about this power sharing agreement because yarla peed is claiming that he's going to take over in two years i mean do you really think bennett would give up this power and and hand it over to someone who's not ideologically on the same page as him? Absolutely not. I don't think there's really? any chance. If this, again, if this, if this, you know, patchwork coalition actually succeeds and actually run, you know, is able to hold on for two years, which would be, you know, two years in Israeli politics is, is a lifetime. It's, it's eternity. If they manage to hold on that long, and if Tali Bennett manages to be the prime minister for those two years, in two years, the political map is going to be completely different. He's going to be a very strong man. They're going to go for elections, and he's going to win big enough to remain prime minister without them. He's not going to give up being prime minister after two years if he, you know, if this if this goes through. Yair Lapid is never going to be prime minister if this happens. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It seems like a total pipe dream. And Yar Lapid seems like a complete moron for even thinking that this would happen. I mean, it just seems crazy. He is a complete moron. There's no question (laughs) that he's a complete moron. I mean, so you mentioned that, you know, all of these parties, it doesn't matter really who, what party you're a member of and what political uh, figure you are. They all kind of adhere to the same orthodoxy of Zionism, of course. I mean, talk really briefly about the Yash Atid party. 
does this party support a two-state solution? How is it different considering that it has so many seats in the Knesset? It's not different. You know, Israel, every mm. few years, there's a new centrist party popping up in Israeli, Israeli politics. They change the names, they change the leader, they, they redo their platform a little bit, but it's basically the same people with the same politics the same nonsense who want at, at the which which are, which are led by somebody who wants to be prime minister um and they seem to be a little bit more appealing to what is considered you know mainstream kind of uh, more educated israelis israelis who are embarrassed to vote for netanyahu and 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 you know to the more right-wing parties uh, but they never succeed they never do it. They never succeed. They're always they're always split up, and then they make up, and then they split up, and then they make up, and then they work together. They work apart, you know. I mean, Benny Gantz, who used to be Israel's army chief of staff, was is was until now the defense minister under Netanyahu. Now he's suddenly going to be the defense minister under Yair Lapid. He was actually the one who led the coalition against Netanyahu in the previous elections, mm-hmm. and he was actually almost there. In other words, he was he had a coalition, he had a majority, but at the last second, he capitulated because he didn't want to be remembered as the politician who relied on the Arab vote. So then he wow. ended up capitulating, giving Netanyahu the premiership, and working for Netanyahu. That's what always happens in the end with these with these kind of center center left. Uh, Zionist parties. They always fall apart. They always capitulate. And Netanyahu, you know, always wins. And that's why he's remain, he remains prime minister. He's very strong. He's the best horse trader in the game. He has a ton of influence. Nobody cares that he's indicted. And again, I don't think they're going to be able to defeat him even this time. And if they do, it won't last very long. But that's what these center parties are in Israel. Every few years, there's a new one. There's another one. They have a different name. I don't know how they keep coming up with all these names all the time for these ridiculous <laughs> political parties. And on the other side, you have the Likud, who is solid right-wing, solidly led by Netanyahu, has been solidly led by neo-fascists for decades. And they are you know, the most reliable people, led by the most reliable prime minister, um, which is why they win every time. Wow. I mean, what about the Palestinians that are part of this? Because I've seen actually people argue that, OK, Palestinians actually have veto power in this coalition. They can block anything, which gives them this unprecedented kind of, uh, you know, power that they've amassed, which kind of proves that Israel is more fair than we think. You know, there really is room to move Israel left and blah, 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 blah. I mean, what is the reality here? How much power do the Palestinians have in this coalition? Well, not to sound crude, but they're going to chew him up and they're going to spit him out as soon as they don't need him. They're not going to. They, he's going to have zero power. He's going to have zero influence. And his constituents are going to get screwed just like Palestinians are getting screwed you know, throughout the history of the state of Israel. It is absolutely science fiction to expect that a Zionist political party will sign any kind of an agreement with the Palestinians. And if they do, it's even more science fiction to expect that they will actually adhere by what they signed. Israel has never, has never, ever uh, respected any of the agreements it signed with Palestinians, and there's no reason why they would with this guy. This guy is a joke. He will be remembered as a joke, if not worse. 
um, and his constituents. Again, he has put himself in this crazy position where he's, you know, people call him the kingmaker. He's not just he's not the kingmaker. They're going to use him and then they're going to spit him out. There's no way he's going to do anybody any good, certainly not for the Palestinians, certainly not with Naftali Bennett, who wants to get rid of the very constituents of this particular um, Palestinian political party, Arab party. What are they using the Palestinian for? Because like, I mean, does Israeli society really care about the fact that they want to appear like they're being fair to the Arab vote? You know what I mean? Israel just doesn't care at all about this, but that's the only way they could put this together, this coalition together. Okay. They needed his four seats. They right. needed his four votes to get a 61 majority, which okay. even now they're not sure they're going to get because Naftali Bennett's own members <laughs> are not guaranteed to vote for this because why? how could they possibly vote to sit in a government, to sit in a coalition with the very people they want to destroy? You know the very people that they call terrorists, the very people that they that they incite against, the very people that are there that their constituents are lynching. You know it makes absolutely no sense. Well, that's why it would. It seems like it would have been a better bet to just be, to just base it on Bennett and and just completely make the Palestinian just totally obsolete and just be like, okay, we're just gonna we're just gonna depend on Bennett's votes and his party. That's not enough. Okay. Okay. So they they don't have enough votes because you said they only have like six, right? He has he has six or seven, and they got okay. four. They, the math doesn't right. work without them. So they need right. Bennett, and they need them. You know, it's right. it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's like I don't know David Duke and the. It's it's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it's just you know, you take David Duke and you take off his robe, and suddenly that's Naftali Bennett. This is Naftali Bennett. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's bizarre, and what's even more bizarre is that. The press and everybody around the world are are treating this like it's some kind of a, a revelation, some kind of a government that is going to bring peace and change and prosperity. And I was thinking, what have they been? What have they been smoking that they can say this nonsense? It's completely absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And and again, it's so absurd that the likelihood of it actually succeeding is extremely extremely small. I mean, it is it is totally absurd. It's kind of similar to just Biden just saying, you know, Trump is the is the only problem with America. And this is why they just blamed, you know, fake news and all this in Russia, because they just couldn't face the fact that Trump really does represent what America is. I mean, it's it's just it's very, very cartoonish. And then you see people like even Bernie Sanders. I mean, not only the tone down your rhetoric thing, but also saying that this could be a change for Israeli society. In what way? This guy is way, I mean, it's just insane. It is hard to wrap your mind around the fact that this guy is even more right wing. So what exactly is changing here? You know, Israel will point to the fact that, and and they constantly, of course, point to the fact that there are like four Palestinians in the Knesset as the reason that they cannot have an apartheid regime. Because look, Arabs are represented here. I mean, South Africa, when it was trying to rebrand its image, it had a parliament with over 100 seats for what they called colored people. So I guess just like debunk that talking point, because I hear that constantly. Like, OK, Arabs are represented in the Knesset. So how could that be an apartheid state? <laughs> you know, it's where do you where, where, where do you even start? Uh, do you want to start with uh, the fact that Palestinians have no access to water, to education, to health care? Um, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians live without access to roads. So in case of an emergency, an ambulance can't even reach them. 
Do you want to talk about the fact that uh, a child, a Palestinian child with, can- with curable cancer will die while an Israeli child with the same cancer that lives across the street will live because they have access to the treatment? Do you want to talk about thousands of Palestinian activists being arrested, being tortured in the Shabak, you know, the secret police uh, underground uh, torture chambers throughout the country? I mean, where where do we even start, you know? So, yes, so there are a few people who are sitting in the Knesset. They have absolutely zero influence and z- zero power. I mean, do you want to talk about the fact that Palestinians live, have a different, entirely different status depending on where they live in the country? whether they're in what used to be the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip or different other in Jerusalem or any other part of the country. I mean, do you want to talk about the lack of opportunities? Do you want to talk about racism in, in the education system? I mean, it goes on and on and on. And never mind the fact that the very laws, the very laws that have been passed in the Israeli Knesset over 74 years, and particularly the nation state law, make it abundantly clear that Israel has designed itself and has defined itself as an apartheid state, as a state for Jewish people in an Arab country in Palestine. There's, you know, the the, the, the argument is absolutely absurd. It's like the argument about anti-Semitism. Fine, you think Mm -hmm. it's anti-Semitism to to criticize Israel? So let's talk about bombing children in Gaza, killing innocent civilians in Gaza. Let's talk about lack of water for Palestinians. Let's talk about thousands of political prisoners. I mean, where do you even start? But, you know, they like to argue about the word instead of, you know, what should be toned down is not the rhetoric. What should be toned down is the racism and the apartheid and the violence. You know, what is Bernie Sanders even thinking? How could he possibly say something so incredibly insensitive and, and, and outrageous? The problem is not the tone. The problem is not the rhetoric. The problem is the violence and the racism against Palestinians. Right. I mean, you saw the campaign working very effectively, Miko. You saw people like Mark Ruffalo taking a giant step back from his tone, right, and and the language that he was using, even though genocide is exactly what's happening. If you look at the actual UN definition, it's not about uh, it's not classified as just extermination. It's classified as erasure, attempted erasure. Um, so it's just outrageous that you saw all these people being pressured and the pressure working, you know, I mean, at this point in time, really, it, it, a line has to be drawn in the sand and you have to just step over it and and stay there, you know. And then they'll use also the talking point, oh, boss runs Palestine. You know, it's like, what are you talking The Palestine's under a military occupation. It doesn't matter if there's this puppet there who works in collaboration with the Israeli government to maintain this occupation. Um, but yeah, the, the, you just hear these talking points over and over again. And it's just so frustrating because we know the reality which is the fact that the majority of political parties in Israel maintain and uphold the orthodoxy of Jewish supremacy and Zionism. I mean, straight up. So you were you were recently with one of these politicians who like, does, I don't know exactly who this guy was, but talk more about him. Apparently he was arrested in Sheikh Jarrah, um, one of these politicians who was repressed. Like, what is his deal and how many politicians like this exist that are actually like, you know, getting active in, in terms of trying to oppose ethnic cleansing? Well, I think you're talking about Ofer Kassif. Ofer Kassif was, uh, is a member of the, of the Joint Arab List, although he's, he's an Israeli. Um, he's a, when he was elected to the Knesset, the Israeli right went nuts. They went to the court. They went all the way to the Supreme Court to try to disqualify him, but they couldn't. 
Um, and he's a, you know, he's an excellent guy. And he was in Sheikh Jarrah. A week before I met him in Sheikh Jarrah, he was beaten by the Israeli armed police. Uh, beaten badly. You know, he has glasses. Glasses were broken. He was bruised and battered. His shirt was torn. You know, there's videos that show clearly how he was being beaten up by these guys. I saw him the following week. Uh, he was there again. And there was an incident. The, the, that week, particular week, the... The protest at Sheikh Jarrah was very peaceful. It was very quiet. And then for a period of maybe 30 seconds, one Palestinian kid stood up on one of these concrete um, blocks and held up a Palestinian flag. It was so brief that I couldn't even raise my phone to take a picture of it. And within seconds, an entire platoon of these, you know, military armed police were just ramming into the crowd, just ramming into the crowd, um, trying to arrest this kid. They couldn't find him, and the crowd was actually pretty well organized and protected him. So they rammed in, and then they rammed out, and then Ofer Kassif ran out. I followed him just to see if he was going to beat up. You know, I was going to kind of try to help him, but the police were very polite, and they realized who he was, and he was a member of Knesset. And he just told them, what, you know, he said to them, what are you doing? This is a peaceful protest. What in the world are you doing instigating <laughs> instigating all this violence? Um, so that was great to see that. You know, there are a few politicians, but he's he's part of that small political party, political list, the joint Arab list, which is the only voice of reason and, and anti-Zionism within the Knesset. But, you know, they have a very small, it's a very, very small list, and they're the only ones who are probably not going to vote for any of the options, in other words, any any Netanyahu or Bennett, because they, they can't vote for for any of these guys. Um, so that's that's what that was. And I was also I spent a day in the Nakab with a Palestinian activist who was arrested and beaten and tortured for three days in the dungeons of the Israeli Shabak, and he's an Israeli citizen. Um, and then we went to court to see his brother and other activists who were lynched lynched by an Israeli mob um, in the south, in the city of Beersheba or Beseba, and, um, and then they were arrested and held without trial and without the ability to see a lawyer. You know, um, it's, 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 it's just a complete, complete madhouse. And nobody talks about these things. All they talk about is this wonderful new messiah by the name of Bennett and this, and this, <laughs> and this, and this, and this insane, insane coalition that he's uh, that he's pretending to um, you know to lead. Um, so how, I mean, how many people are part of that small coalition that actually is saying? I think right now they have. Uh, I think they have six or seven members right now. Members in the Knesset. And you would say that those are pretty much the only people who represent the anti-Zionist voice. Yeah, they're the only. They're the only yeah. sane. They're the only ones who still talk like you know, like we do. They're the only ones who stand up. For Palestinian rights are the only one who t- uh, ones who talk, and of course nobody listens. It's a Knesset of 120 people. Um, you know they can ignore them as they do, and they ignore their constituents as they do. And you know there are about two million Palestinian citizens of Israel who are you know mm-hmm. subjected to this this you know the racism and violence, just like everybody else. So this pretense that somehow Israel is 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 a democracy and is not apartheid is complete and utter nonsense. It's complete and utter lie. But like you said, they are very good at selling this stuff. They're very good at pushing this stuff. Their propaganda, 
their lies are very effective. They know how to, obviously they know how to put pressure on all these people so that they tone down the rhetoric. I mean, it's absolutely (laughs) horrifying. I mean, it seems like they're just completely tokenized in the Knesset. Completely. Almost just to the rest of the world that they could be like, look, but then they just don't listen to anything and they have no power. And they also, you know, the conversation always exists whether or not they should even run. You know, some mm-hmm. people they say they should. Some people say they shouldn't. I mean, that's a, that's an ongoing that's an ongoing discussion, uh, even among those members um, of the Knesset, among those politicians. So obviously, they have like huge Palestinian constituencies, and that's why they're. I'm 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 assuming that's not as you know Jewish Israelis who are electing these people. No, very few, very few, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah, no. So. You know, now I have a completely new insight on whether or not Netanyahu is actually leaving. But let's just say uh, all works out for this bizarre coalition and that he does actually leave. I mean, he's been prime minister for 12 years. He was also prime minister from 96 to 99. Like you said, he's a part of the Likud party. He's the chair, uh, a a very strong right wing party uh, that has a lot of power. I mean, just give us a brief tribute to like the legacy of Netanyahu if he really is indeed out the door, Miko. Well, he uh, he managed to destroy what used to be, if we're just talking about the Israeli part of the, the equation, if we ignore, for example, for, for a moment, the Palestinians, you know, anything that has to do with public health, public education, public transportation, he destroyed. Uh, there's no more public health. It's been destroyed. Or not no more, but it's in terrible, in terrible shape. Oh, so he's like a privatization guy, too. Completely. He is the king of privatization. Oh, and he destroyed wow. the, and the local agriculture, too. And so, um, you know, there used to be a really good public transportation system, Israeli public transportation system. It's gone. All you see are highways and highways and highways. And I don't know, something like four or 500,000 new cars on the street, on the highways every mm. single year. I mean, it's, it's uh, healthcare has deteriorated with, uh, you know, to levels that nobody could have anticipated. Hadassah Hospital, which used to be like this, the flagship of Israeli healthcare, is in tatters and bankrupt. You know, doctors are running away. Uh, the public education, I mean, he's destroyed every possible aspect of the state and what the state used to do for its uh, citizens. But he's got this charisma. He's got, you know, he's a very influential politician. He has so many foreign leaders in his pocket. It's, it's, it's unbelievable to see um, how they line up to, to, for photo ops with him. Everyone from Putin all the way to Bennett and uh, to Biden and everybody in between. Um, and, um, it's, 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 a it's, a, it, that's the kind of guy he is, he, you know, and of course he managed to get all these, uh, Arab regimes to sign normalization agreements with the state of Israel. Um, mm-hmm. and he knows how to sell the state of Israel as this very, very positive, you know, forward thinking, forward moving, you know, uh, light years ahead of everybody else kind of, demo- you know, democracy. That's who the man is. He's a, he's a disaster uh, on, on two legs. And people, in terms of Israelis, hated and rejected him not because of his ideology, but because he was just corrupt and stole from essentially them. Well, nobody actually rejected him. That's the point. He won more seats than anybody else. So yeah, they actually didn't right. reject him. But there are plenty of politicians who hate him and want to see him leave. This entire thing, this entire Netanyahu thing has got nothing to do with the voters. It has everything to do with the politicians themselves. 
and nobody else managed to get enough enough seats to oust him. Election after election after election after election, nobody manages to oust him. You know, they've had four elections in the last two years. They're actually already talking about a fifth election, anticipating that this coalition is going to fail. My God, you know, and nobody can oust him. He is he is very much you know he's very much the leader that Israelis you know are willing to vote for, and nobody cares that he's that he's an indicted criminal. So you have all of this going on. You know, there is there was one interesting thing that happened while I was there that's probably worth mentioning. You know, Blinken was there in Ramallah, mm-hmm. and during his visit, he actually met with four Palestinian activists, like real activists, real people on the ground. Mm-hmm. One from Hebron, Isambro, who's quite well known. Uh, one from Gaza, one from Jerusalem, one from Jericho. Um, and these were, you know, activists who told him, you know, America needs to... And I met one of them. I met this Amro like minutes after the meeting. Um, and I thought it was probably going to be like a handshake or a photo op. And it wasn't. Yeah. It was a real substantial meeting. And they told him, you know, uh, the United States needs to recognize what Human Rights Watch and so many other organizations said and what Amnesty will probably be saying very soon. That Israel is an apartheid regime. The entire of Israel, from the river to the sea, the entire operation is an apartheid regime. Mm-hmm. That America needs to recognize and speak to all the Palestinian factions, including Hamas, including the BDS people. That America needs to stop. He said, you know, he was told, "We don't want your money. We need political recognition. We need political support. We we don't need the financial favors. That's not helping us." So he heard some really good things, and this meeting was initiated by the Americans. That has never happened before. That has never wow. happened. Not even at a low level meetings could people like that ever meet with, you know, members of an American administration. So that's a you know, that's a big thing. I mean, that's a big thing. And yes, a lot of these Palestinians were criticized because, you know, on the one hand, America is giving money and arms to kill Palestinians, and then they're meeting these activists. But the reality is that without America recognizing the reality, there's not going to be a lot of change. So, you know, this was this was kind of a, an opening, which I thought was very, very interesting. And perhaps, perhaps, perhaps is pointing to some small change taking place. I totally agree with you. And I think that that's why, of course, we need to put pro-Palestine solidarity at the forefront of anti-imperialism and the struggle for anti-imperialism here in the U.S. because it's part and parcel with the fight against empire, against U.S. imperialism. Um, and I encourage BDS against us. You know, because I feel like, I mean, we're we're moving too slow. Perhaps there's not enough of us here to actually make our government bend to our will and actually ultimately stop funding Israeli apartheid and propping it up, as well as all these other countries that are subjugating their populations at our behest. And all of this discussion that you've outlined about the composition of the Knesset and what these parties represent really do prove the point. Uh, that you've been making for so long, Miko, that there is no hope from within Israeli society. And that is why you point to BDS as a crucial, crucial outlet, as something that we all need to be striving towards. I guess just elaborate on this in the context of this coalition and and what could be the new government. Well, I think I think we've been too patient. Mm. I think we have been too patient and it's time to stop being patient on the issue of Palestine uh, there's no room for patience. Palestinian kids are being beaten, they're being killed, they're being tortured in, 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 in these dungeons. 
Um, Palestinians are dying of, of all sorts of, in all sorts of ways because of the state of Israel. The apartheid regime is horrible and we need to stop being patient. We need to tone up the rhetoric. We need to put it on steroids. We need to be screaming at the top of our lungs. We need to make it clear that to every elected official that if they do not support, if they do not demand boycott, divestment, and sanctions against the state of Israel, they will not be elected. Politicians need to walk around with a big BDS pin that I always wear, <laughs> or else they will not be elected. Anybody who's, who, who claims, even in, in the smallest, most remote you know, secret that he's a, he or she is a Zionist must be ousted. There has to be zero tolerance to Zionism, just like any other form of supremacy and racism. People have to stop talking about Zionism as though it's different. Zionism is anti-Semitism. It is supremacy. You know, we have to be, I think we have to be 10 times more vocal. We have to ramp up the rhetoric a thousand times, whether Bernie Sanders likes it or not. That is what we need to do because there is no time for patience. Number one, you know, people are dying. And mm -hmm. number two, this this madhouse of apartheid, this madhouse of a Zionist regime, is marching towards the destruction of Al-Aqsa. Never mind the fact that it's a 1,500-year-old, enormously important, magnificent structure that is important to you know is being worshipped is, is is worshipped and and, tr and and cherished by a, you know close to one billion people around the world. It is part and parcel of the history of, 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 of that country, of the Middle East, of the world. It's, it's, you know, it's, and when it's destroyed, it's going to be too late. And that's where they're going. They're going to destroy that. They have this crazy idea that they want to build their own, some kind of a crazy building there. Or they call it a temple, whatever they call it. There's, this is very real. In other words, what I saw there and what I see there whenever I'm there, and, and, and you've seen it too when you were there, it's a madhouse of, of, of people who absolutely do not understand how severe the situation is, and people on the outside who look in and say, yeah, these people are actually making sense. You know, we have to ramp it up. We have to speak louder. We have to get more people, like you said, we have to get more people involved. And elected politicians, whether they're running for school board or they're mm -hmm. running for president and anything in between, if they even squeak in any way that they are they support Zionism, they should be ousted. They should be they should be shamed. To support Zionism is to support racism and violence and genocide. And it has to be made absolutely clear that there's there should be no tolerance for that. And again, people are dying. You know, the Sixth Fleet needs to be needs to be on the shores of Palestine, imposing a no-fly zone over Gaza and providing humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza. You know that's what needs to be happened. That that's that's the the policy that the United States need, needs to needs to enact. Not this nonsense of, of of being proud to be Zionists. We need to reverse that, and we're the only ones who can do it. Nobody can do it for us. In other words, we're the ones who live here. We are the ones that need to push for that. Absolutely. I mean, do you really think that Bennett is going to move forward with the destruction of Al Aqsa? That that's a pretty scary thing. The thing is, there are. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis who support this right. idea. Let me tell you two right. things. Let me tell you two things about that, okay? It was just the anniversary, 54th anniversary of the 1967 war. The most iconic line, the most iconic sentence that is remembered from that war, and you ask any Israeli, any Israeli kid, secular, religious, it doesn't matter. 
when the commander of the Israeli forces took, um, you know, the, the old city and the Alaksa area, he called out in his, you know, on the on the microphone, "We have the Temple Mount again. The Temple Mount is in our hands." Wow, that is the most symbolic, most iconic sentence, and the picture of the Israeli soldiers there kissing and hugging the wall as though. You know, there was some, you know, there's the, the, some kind of messianic, some some miracle just took place. You know, it is incredibly, incredibly, and you know, all the songs that came out. There was this famous song called "Jerusalem of Gold," that became also iconic by this, you know, by the, the national poet of the state of Israel, where she talks about how, you know, the marketplace, the streets of the marketplace were empty. Nobody prayed on the Temple Mount. Nobody climbed, went up to the Temple Mount to pray. The roads leading to Jericho from Jerusalem were empty, as though there was nobody there, as though there were no people there. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been praying on Al-Aqsa for, forever, and there was nobody there. The markets of the old city were packed for you know, for forever. There was nobody there. But that is the vision. The vision is, the idea is, the sense is, until we get the Temple Mount again, until we correct this injustice and get rid of the mosque and put our own Jewish temple like King David had, then we will never be really free and liberated and you know, we will never have really reclaimed our land and our rights. And this is something that every secular Israeli agrees with, if not fervently believes. This is not a religious thing. It's a nationalistic thing. It became a national symbol. And that's why they're always, they're, they're always you know, they want to see the Israeli flag up there. They want to see the Jewish temple up there. You know, as you walk up, there's a special walkway for Jews during visiting hours towards that area, towards Al-Aqsa. And there's a big model, built-up model of what the temple is going to look like. I was there just there. I took a tour with these. There in front of the mosque? On the way to the mosque. <laughs> on the way to <laughs> <What>? the mosque. <laughs> You know, I took this tour. I went in. I went in when they had the visiting hours, and I didn't realize that I was walking into a tour uh, with these lunatic settler, you know, messianic religious <laughs> Temple Mount people. We, you know, we were guarded by an entire platoon of heavily armed, you know, militarized police, and the entire tour was to allow them to go there and pray, even though they're not supposed to go there and pray. Um, and that's all this is about. And as you walk up, there's a little special walkway that takes you up there. There's a massive uh, model of what this, you know, this structure that they call a temple, which is supposed to replace uh, Al-Aqsa and, and the Golden Dome. I mean, it's, it's, un, it's not unbelievable. It's time that we start believing that because that right. is the vision. That's what Zionism is. That's where Zionism is going. And there's nobody better than Bennett to lead this, because even secular, non-religious, non-settler Israelis are actually beginning to like him. See, that this is also awakening for me, Miko, because I honestly did think that the Temple Mount movement was like more of an extreme, you know, settler-driven, ultra-religious movement. You know, like the, the tens of thousands of people chanting in front of Al-Aqsa burned their memories when it was on fire during, you know, a couple of weeks ago. It was really horrifying. But the fact that this is like, crosses over into secular society and that a lot of Israeli Jews support this is just absolutely heartbreaking. 
it's completely it's become completely mainstream and again if you look back at the 1967 war that iconic sentence the temple mount is in our hand the photos of the of the soldiers and these were secular soldiers they wouldn't know that wall from any other brick wall you know i mean all these photos were 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 you know there was there were people who you know put them in their place and took these photos but that's what people remember of that war that's what people that's how people feel about this and you know this iconic song the jerusalem of gold you know, which became, you know, more famous than any any other any other Israeli song. That's what it describes. Like there was nothing there, and finally we're here to reclaim it. And therefore, we need to go all the way, of course, and build our own temple there, as we always dreamed of, and so on. You know what I mean? That's that's it became a national symbol, and that's a very dangerous thing because these Bennett types. It's this toxic combination of this messianic mm-hmm. neo-fascist religion and this neo-fascist secular movement combined. You know, it's very, very dangerous. It's more dangerous, I think, than anybody really appreciates how severe this is and how close we are. And then when the flames were burning right next to Al-Aqsa, like you just described, and thousands of young Israelis were dancing in the plaza below, that is a warning sign. That was a huge warning sign because that's precisely how it's going to happen. They're not going to bomb it, but there's going. To, but they were inside the mosque, and I have friends that were inside the mosque doing Ramadan while the Israeli soldiers were shooting and throwing and, and uh, tear gas and, and rubber bullets and whatnot. And the place, and you know, these things that they catch fire very quickly. Yeah, it's an ancient, ancient artifact. I mean, yeah. it's a historic building that's that needs to be protected. There's trees everywhere. There's there's and oops, there's going to be an accident. And suddenly, what are you nope. going to do? It's on fire and it's gone. What are we going to do? We're very sorry. It's going to be too late. We need to stop these people now. We need to stop Zionism now. We need to impose and demand boycott, divestment, and sanctions, isolation of the state of Israel. We have to do it now. And all of us, you know, I did this thing. I did this live stream with with a with um, a network in Gaza this morning, and. Um, you know, we need to do more because they are not protected. You know, these Palestinians on the ground who are active, nobody protects them. You know, Yad Bernat from, from Bilain, who's a really well-known activist, his two boys, who I saw growing up over the years, two of the finest really young men, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, they're being tortured now for weeks. He hasn't seen them. He hasn't heard from them. Nobody protects them. Nobody's there to protect him and his kids. It's up to us. Nobody cares. They could kill him, kill his kids, kill all these wonderful activists that you and I know that work so hard in Palestine, and there's no recourse. There's no Nobody takes responsibility. Nobody goes to court. Who's going to protect them? Who's going to protect these kids in Gaza who are being bombed and, and, and killed by Israel? You know, It's a terrible, terrible reality that these people have absolutely no protection. We're the ones who have to do it, and that's why we have to amplify our voice. And like, I, you know, thank God you have your, you know, your audience and your show, and you're out there putting this information out there. But we have to do more. There has to be more of us doing this stuff. It has to be amplified, and we have people like Bernie Sanders have to understand that we have to amplify the rhetoric, not tone it down. Oh, wow. I mean, that urgency really needs to be, you know, spread. Miko, thank you for that, and and I hope that the fire continues to be lit and the public consciousness continues to be spread because we are out of time. We are officially out of time. Yes, and, we are. Um, how many more children 
need to die. Yeah. How many more people need to die? Uh, Miko, we have to get you on again at some point to talk about your new book that you're working on. Uh, briefly tell our audience what it's about and how people can find your work. Well, I've been, you know, there's a, one of the things that people don't know about the anti-Zionist movement is that the, a, a large portion, a huge portion of the ultra, ultra-Orthodox um, Jewish community have always been anti-Zionist. And some of them are more active, some of them are not as active, but anti-Zionism is, is an important part of who they are and what they do. And so I started talking to them and working with them and interviewing them a couple of years ago. And um, I've written a couple of articles. I kind of put some information out there. But uh, that's the book I'm working on. And I've got, I've got hours and hours of interviews and, and videos and, and, and discussions with some of the major rabbis. Um, and they all they all talk very very strongly and explain this entire anti-Zionist uh, just how crucial anti-Zionism is to the ultra-orthodox community. And what's interesting is here in the United States, the ones who live you know in in, in New York and the upstate New York area, these are all descendants of Holocaust survivors. They all ended up there after the Holocaust, and they are the most fervent anti-Zionist community. Uh, out there today. So it's a very, very interesting, uh, you know, it's a very interesting uh, topic that I, you know, we'll see. It'll t- probably take me a while before I publish the book, but that's what I'm doing right now. And if anybody wants to, you know, find anything out, micopella.com or uh, the Micopella podcast on Patreon, um, I'm all social media, TikTok, you name it, I'm there. So people can follow, you know, send messages, do whatever they like. And I've just had I love the, it. I just had the I just had a lecture, like an in-person event in Dallas uh, last weekend. So that was that was exciting too. Fantastic. So you'll be doing more events. Uh, please support Miko on Patreon. Please check out his work. I mean, so much, so much incredible work that you've done, Miko. Thank you for being a leading voice on this topic, and thank you again for your urgency. I really appreciate it because it just continues to inspire me and countless others. Thank you so much for coming on the Empire Files podcast and shedding very crucial insight on what's going on. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Abby. Talk to you soon. <laughs>